Fritz. Well, happy Easter, everyone. My name is Chris. I haven't had the pleasure to meet you yet, and I'm the one responsible for the lines not being up on the scripture that told us when to read, right? So you did not hear incorrectly Jess's instructions, um, but you did see mess up number 37 for me this week. Six months ago this week, 18 families gathered in this room for the first worship service of Redeemer Fellowship. We met on a Sunday morning on what Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 calls the Lord's Day and what Acts chapter 20 and 1 Corinthians 16 refer to as the first day of the week. Each Sunday since then, we've gathered to do the same thing. We sing songs of worship together. We pray together. When I get the lines right, we read Scripture together. We hear God's Word preached together. And the gospel of His Son is proclaimed. The gospel that we gather to celebrate is the death and resurrection of Jesus in whom we've placed our faith and in whom we are united to the glory of God. So our aim as we gather together in worship each and every week is to exalt Christ, our Redeemer. But today, with Christians scattered all over the world, We gather to particularly celebrate the resurrection of Jesus who, on that first day of the week, some 2,000 years ago, left the tomb empty. And he rendered death. And he rendered sting without any victory. So on the evening of that first day of the week, 2,000 years ago, the disciples were gathered But their gathering was not a time of celebration. In fact, the doors were locked behind them for fear of what the Jews might do to them. And their hearts were broken. They were broken not only for their sense of loss, but also for their sense of failure and quite frankly, shame. Like us, on any given day, they didn't need to be reminded of the all-familiar news of the day. But they needed the good news. They needed the gospel. And the gospel had dawned on that first day of the week. They needed an assuring visit from the resurrected Jesus. So this morning, I want us to to peer into that room, that, that closed, locked door room, and I want us to consider the events of the day that led up to that gathering in that room. If you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, we're going to read John's account and his telling of the events of that room. And we'll begin reading on in verse 19. If you'll follow along in your copy of God's Word, I'm only going to read three verses and then spend some time backtracking together. This is the Word of the Lord. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent you, I'm sorry, has sent me, even so I am sending you. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, because of your Son Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, would you grace us with eyes to see? Would you grace us with ears to hear what the disciples saw that day? And would you provide the gifts this day that you provided that day? We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. We'll have an outline that you can follow along on the screen as we walk through this passage and the opening verses of chapter 20. Broken this passage down into two points, the first of which is Jesus came to his disciples. Jesus came to his disciples. To talk about that, I want us to look at a couple things beginning with the events of the day. So we have read in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, and then allow me to skip some words, I'll come back and pick them up in just a second to complete this thought. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, Jesus came and stood among them. It had been an emotionally draining weekend for the 11 remaining disciples and for others that were gathered in that room that had followed Jesus and served him during his earthly ministry. For Jesus, that first day of the week was packed. And it contained everything from a a break of dawn reveal to a long road to Emmaus, a long walk along a road to Emmaus. And the day ended with his pursuit of the hearts of his disciples. But before we look into the evening meeting in that room, let's remind ourselves of what had taken place earlier. And to do so, I want to kind of glance at four things um, along the way. The first comes in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. Mary was present at the dawn of new creation. Mary was present at the dawn of new creation. Look as I read verses 1 and 2. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the tomb, the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account of the morning of the resurrection, John is the only one that mentions Mary Magdalene as being the one who approached the tomb. I say that, and I'll correct my kind of misspeak there. He's the only one that only mentions her. There were other people present, but he chooses to zoom in on Mary Magdalene, who found it empty in his account. If John was the only one of the four of the disciple or the gospel writers that that you ever read, you'd be tempted to think that she came alone. But we know that other ladies accompanied her to the tomb, including Mary, the mother of Jesus. But this is not Mary, the mother of Jesus, that we're looking at this morning. So as we've studied 
through the book of John for a while now together. We started at chapter 13, and now we've jumped, uh, we've walked all the way through that final discourse, and now we're at chapter 20. We've grown accustomed to John providing the details of the story that he did, not to contradict the others, but to highlight something that he wants us to see. So now we're introduced to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, before being saved, had been held captive by demonic spirits. Now, however, she is a new creation. One whose expressions of love and expressions of gratitude ever since she was saved were equal to how much she realized she had been forgiven by Jesus. Although we don't know, John doesn't tell us why, We don't know, but maybe John chose to highlight Mary Magdalene alone as an additional window into the gospel for us. Maybe John wanted to highlight how the love of Jesus has no limitation to whom it can reach. It has no barrier that would present his offer of peace to individuals. So maybe the story of Mary Magdalene, which the readers would have known, is to be on the forefront of our knowledge as we read John chapter 20 and we're introduced to just one person, not multiple ladies, but one in particular who found her way to the tomb and found the stone rolled away. When she saw that the stone had been taken from the tomb, she bolts out of there and runs and tells Peter and John, which, which leads to the second thing that happened earlier that day that I want to highlight. So if you're taking notes, you might write this next one down. A foot race led to faith, albeit shaky faith. A foot race led to faith, albeit shaky faith. And the rest of this is found in verses 3 through 10. And I won't take the time to read verses 3 to 10. But when those two guys received the news about the removed stone, they took off running. Peter got a head start as he was probably prone to do. He, he might have thrown an elbow at John on the way out of wherever they were. But apparently John caught up and arrived first. Think about this. One arrived first, that was John. But the other entered first, that was Peter. John stops this side of the uh, tomb. But when Peter gets there, he barges right on then. The fast one believed, John. The slower one was not only slower of foot, but also slower to believe. The tomb that no longer contained Jesus, was anything but empty. What they both saw provided them, and it provides us, a valuable proof of the resurrection. Verses 6 and 7 let us know that the burial linens that had wrapped Jesus' body and the cloth that had covered His face were lying there. Jesus had not been taken, but had risen up out of the linens in which they had wrapped Him. Fifty years after this discovery, John writes this gospel account. And throughout those fifty years, he's he's growing in his faith and understanding and appreciation and love for his Master and his Savior. But it led him to write what he wrote. To include a confession of his own lack of faith. Look at verse 9 of chapter 20. He wrote, For as yet... 
They did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. However, He believed after He saw those linen clothes lying there and what else would have been an empty tomb. And as a result, by the grace of God, He believed. The Scriptures say that after this, after this discovery, the disciples went back home. And we don't know the timeline here or, or the method by which Mary Magdalene followed behind the guys, but we do know that she was left there at the tomb upon their departure. Mary Magdalene's part, posture is, is seen, and we'll look at that next, but she stood outside the tomb doing what you can imagine would have been done for someone brokenhearted at the loss of a loved one. She's weeping. As she wept though, she stooped. She stooped to look inside the tomb for herself. And this leads me to the third thing that happened that morning that I want to point out to you. Voice recognition unlocked the chains on Mary's heart. When Mary looked in, she did not notice the linen cloth because, again, as a grace, God allowed her to see something else. There were two angels in white that were sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One was sitting where His head was, had been, and one was sitting where His feet had been. They asked her, hey, why are you crying? She told them, hey, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid Him. When she gave the answer, after she gave the answer, she turns around and she sees Jesus. But he, she didn't know who Jesus was at the time. For reasons that are not made clear to us uh, by John, Jesus kept his identity from being known to her right there on that day of his resurrection. Later on in the day, he would keep his identity known from two guys who were walking along the road to Emmaus. But after she turns and has eye contact with who she thought when assumed was the gardener, the man said, and it was Jesus, who said, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Like I said, thinking she was seeing and talking to the gardener, she replied and responded to him, Sir, if, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. And Jesus called her by his name. I'm sorry, her name. And simply said, Mary. Immediately she knew who he was. And, and, and she replied, back to him in, Amer in Aramaic saying, Rabboni, which means teacher. Think about this. Voice recognition unlocked the chains of Mary's heart. And according to Matthew's account, she fell down and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Which kind of brings us up to speed to this fourth thing that happened that day that I want to show you. We find this in verses 17 to 18, and, and what we see is that Jesus commissioned an unreliable witness. 
Jesus commissioned an unreliable witness. Based on Jesus' next statement to Mary, she had no intention of letting, letting go of the legs of Jesus, right? But Jesus had other things that he had to get to. And he had another plan for Mary Magdalene. Jesus said, do not cling to me. Go to my brothers and tell them what you've seen and, and what I've told you. It's important to understand because it, it speaks gospel truth on the other side of this explanation. As a woman in that culture, in that day, Mary was an unreliable witness. Not because she wasn't able to follow through with accuracy, but because as a woman, her testimony would not have even been heard. I bring this to your attention this morning, not to say, wow, look how far our society has come. But to say that Jesus continued to the very end to reach out to and to welcome the marginalized. The gospel throws cultural norms upside down on their head. And by entrusting this commission to what the world would have seen as an unreliable witness, Jesus is doing one more thing to prove this. And we read this from 1 Corinthians. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. What is weak in the world to shame the strong. And what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to, to nothing things that are nothing. To bring to, to being things that are nothing. Forgive me. Let's move on in our primary text now. We've kind of had a, a, a swath of review here of what happened that day. We've looked at the events of the day. Now I want to point out the atmosphere of that room. Go back with me to that room with the doors locked and the 11 disciples plus other followers of Christ in there. Here's what chapter 19 continues to say. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, notice this, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Mary Magdalene's heart has risen from the garden when she sees Jesus. She has gone with great efficacy to deliver the news and testimony of what Jesus had given her to deliver. The light of the dawn of the new creation had broken for Mary Magdalene in that garden. But it was still dark and gloomy in the room behind those locked doors. I won't belabor this point, but I do think it's worth pointing out that that they were fearful of the Jews, as John has points out, but fear was not the only thing that held them captive in that room. And fear is not the only thing that oftentimes holds us captive. A couple things. This group in this room, they were troubled in their minds, and they were troubled in their consciences. Having received the report from Mary Magdalene that I've seen Jesus. You would think that they, they would already be overjoyed, but the atmosphere of that room could have probably been sliced with a knife, wouldn't you think? Alone, in the midst of a group, these individuals probably were. Ever felt alone in the midst of a group? 
Well, alone in the midst of a group, I, I imagine they were all wading through, albeit unnecessarily, wading through shame, wading through regrets, wading through failures and, and, and cowardice. How would they ever face Jesus? How could grace reach down as far as they feel? No wonder they've closed themselves away behind locked doors. Pastor Alistair Begg points out that although they were locked down, Jesus could not be locked out. Jesus came and stood among them. Jesus passed through the doors like He had passed through the grave clothes earlier. John offers us no explanation. He, he does not afford us the answer to the question, how did Jesus enter the room through a locked door? Maybe rightfully so. I say rightfully so because how Jesus entered the room is not the point, but what He bestowed to those inside is the point. And it is the same thing that the empty tomb and His victory at the cross makes available to everyone who will call upon the name of Jesus today. Point number two, as we look on in our passage, is this. Jesus assured His disciples. I'll point out a few ways that He does this. For the sake of your notes, you'll eventually see these three words. Peace, proof, and purpose. Notice verse 20. Actually, the last part of 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. I want you to notice what's not in the DNA of Christ. Jesus didn't come in wagging His finger in disgust or giving them the cold shoulder until they groveled sufficiently enough. He pursued them to assure them that His grace is greater than their sins and their failures. Just like Julia Johnston's hymn from 1910 affirmed. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. He entered the room bestowing peace. I must tell you that this, this would have been as it remains today in Jewish circles, this would have been a normal greeting. However, it was anything but normal given from whom it came and from what He has just returned from accomplishing. Two times during Jesus' meal with His disciples, His Last Supper and the following teaching that He would provide the disciples, He references and brings up His peace that would be bestowed upon them. 
In John chapter 14, verse 27, he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And in John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, he said. I have overcome the world. These statements preceded his victorious approach to Golgotha, where he would in fact defeat death and hell and render death's sting powerless. However, he said it before it happened, so that when he would enter into that room, he could bestow the finished product of his peace upon people. The peace with which Jesus greeted His disciples in that locked room is the peace that is bestowed upon the one who is saved through faith in the finished work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Paul later would write it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, he writes, since we have been justified by faith, in other words, since we have placed our faith in Jesus and God the righteous judge has looked down upon us and declared us innocent because of the shed blood of Jesus which covers our sin, justified. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate peace. And it is a peace that passes all understanding even in the midst of of tribulations and rocky roads in our world. The peace of Jesus is not a respite from our worldly troubles. It is a promise of Jesus' continual presence in the midst of them. It is also the offering and the delivering of new life that's found in Christ. He offered peace. And He offered proof. Notice what our passage says. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, second time he says this, peace be with you. Thomas wasn't present in that room that night. But he would later, when the disciples would say, we've seen Jesus. And he said, I, I, I'm never going to believe that until I get to see him and put my hands where the wounds are. But on this occasion in that room, the evening of the resurrection from the dead, Jesus volunteered his wounds to those in the room as a visual proof and evidence of his sacrificial love for his people. And His sacrificial love for His people is not limited to the people in that room, but extends beyond to the inhabitants of the world. The evidence of His physical body and the wounds which He bore not only proves that He was the physically risen Jesus, but in light of His greeting. What greeting? Peace be to you. It reminds us also that He is the Passover Lamb that was in fact pierced and slain and accepted 
as the sufficient offering for the sin of all who would believe in Him. But hear this, Redeemer, and family who are present. Along with the peace that Jesus bestows comes purpose. We see this purpose in the following words of Christ recorded by John. I want you to think of these words as the great commission recorded by John. Each of the gospel writers records a version and variation of the great commission that we recite at the end of all of our services here at Redeemer. But here's John's. It speaks to our purpose as the redeemed. It speaks of our purpose as the recipients of blood-bought peace. As I read this, I want you to be thinking that with this divine purpose comes a command to go. And it comes with an example to follow. Notice the command. The command actually comes from the second half of Jesus' statement. I'll read them both. Here's what He says. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus was sent to achieve our salvation. We are sent to proclaim that salvation. The command was to go. And the example comes from the first half of Jesus' statement. Here's his statement again. As the Father has sent me. As the Father has sent me. Even so I am sending you. How is Jesus sent? Let me offer three among many ways that Jesus was sent. First of all, I'll just kind of throw out there and I'll make a, a brief comment about the third for us. But Jesus was sent with the authority of the Father. You and I are sent with the authority of the Son. Second thing, He was sent with the humility of a servant. You'll recall how Jesus exemplified humble servanthood to the very end. He disrobed from His outer garment and puts on the servant's towel and gets down and washes the feet of His disciples as a visual parable at that Last Supper. To not only give them an example by which to follow, but to point forward to now the hindsight view of what He has just accomplished on the cross. Where Jesus humbled Himself and took, took the role of a servant and let go of His rights. And took the cross for us. And rose victorious. Or victoriously. Three days later, He exemplified humble servanthood to the very end and gave His disciples the commandment to do as He had done. And the third way that I would point out that He came is this. He was sent with a genuine desire to identify with those to whom He was sent. His methods during His earthly ministry were scandalous 
in the eyes of the religious leaders. People opposed to him referred to him as a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. (laughs) But thanks be to God, Jesus came for messed up people just like he came for dressed up people. Think Mary Magdalene. Think 11 disciples who were hunkered down in fear behind a locked door. Think the blind, the leper, the poor, the prostitute, the outsider. But consider also how Jesus has chosen the foolish to confound the wise, to include, to send messed up people like us. Messed up, although purchased. Forgiven, though still prone to fall. And like the disciples, sometimes even recipients of the greatest news, yet in moments of despair, finding ourselves alone in a crowded room and preferring to shut the door and lock it. But Jesus has chosen the foolish to confound the wise, namely to send messed up people to proclaim the gospel message to those those they befriend and those they encounter. Jesus gave a visual parable where He washed the feet of His disciples. And it's our pleasure to follow in His example and His footsteps. But it's also our divine calling to follow in His footsteps as He was sent, so we have been sent. We don't parade our weaknesses. But we do celebrate that in our weakness, He is strong. And in our weakness, we're not highlighting our mess-ups and our foibles and our, our tendency sometimes to want to be alone in a locked door, but we point people to Christ who pursues the marginalized, who could not be contained by death and could not be kept from pursuing the disciples when the door was locked. And He will not be kept from extending His grace to you. And we again invite you to reach out and receive it. Jesus knew they couldn't do this alone. He offers another visual parable in John chapter 20. And He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. He's not contradicting Himself. This would not fully happen until Jesus' ascension and the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost. But here, He's given them a picture of what's about to happen. With the empty tomb, Jesus ushers in the new creation. And with the visual parable of Him, the prophetic visual parable of Him breathing out, He's breathing out the breath of the Spirit and new life upon people who take Him as their Lord and as their Savior and who find their new life in Him. 
And he knows that left on their own, they would need a message. And the message that he gives them is the message we're given. And that's a message of forgiveness. Verse 22 and 23. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We get to participate in the glorious good news of the gospel as recipients of the glorious good news of the gospel. We have had proclaimed and delivered to us peace. Not a weak and light peace as the, prop, or as the false teachers in the Old Testament would offer peace when there was no peace. But peace that can only be found in Jesus, the risen Lord. And it is truly grace. In fact, it's marvelous grace. Can I throw you back to the song from 1910? Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for sending Your Son Jesus to die on the cross, taking upon Himself our sin. Jesus, thank You for becoming sin even though You knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Heavenly Father, thank You for resurrection power by which and through which You rose Your Son Jesus from the dead. Thank You that we who trust in Christ as the risen Savior have been united with Him and have been given and ushered the Holy Spirit. Thank You for the new creation. Heavenly Father, I pray for the friends that are in this room with us this morning. We have gathered to worship. But Lord, worship is reserved for those whose faith has been placed in You, in Jesus, the Son. So if there are those in this room who are hearing this Gospel message of how Jesus came as their substitute to stand in in their place, to take Your punishment for their sin, would You continue to open up their hearts so that they would confess their sin before You, repent of that sin, and receive You as their Lord and Savior? For those who are in Christ, Lord, We celebrate and exalt Your name. We celebrate that the tomb is empty. We we celebrate with with Paul who wrote, O death, where is your sting? Because we know that although we're in the midst of a world with tribulations, our hope is a living hope in You who will return and finish the work that You've begun and usher in a new kingdom where there will be no need for locked doors. There will be no need for confession. And you will make all things new. Until then, Lord, we pray. Empower us with your Holy Spirit. Empower us with the message of forgiveness. Empower us with the faithfulness to open up our mouths to share the glorious good news. And empower us as you did, Jesus, to be friends of sinners. 
Friends enough to love them and hear them and see them. Friends enough to be acquainted in their weakness and their sorrows and to weep when they weep and bleed when they bleed. Friends enough to go the second, third, and fourth mile as we journey with them. As you, Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, do a converting work through the Gospel, ushering and offering peace that can be unto them. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.